Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us, and then you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. Our scripture this morning is from the book of Esther, chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, and verses 10 through 16. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them, because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa three hundred men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed seventy-five thousand of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. God is not done with you. God has a purpose for you. He has a plan for you. He has a call for you. God's not done with you. And my name is Pastor Matt. I'm one of the pastors that helps out from time to time around here. I'm glad to um, be in the pulpit this morning sharing the message from the book of Esther with you. I wonder if that's how the Jews felt in the book of Esther, that God was done with them. They'd been exiled in the Persian Empire, sent far from home. In fact, they'd been there long enough that some had been allowed now to return home. But for some reason, Esther, Mordecai, and her family still remained in Persia, having almost completely become part of the culture. I wonder how Esther felt as a young Jewish girl, an orphan, no mother and father adopted by her cousin. 
I wonder if she felt like God was done with her. What part could she play in God's plan? I don't know about you, but I've felt that way at times in my life. God, are you done with me? What's going on? Where are you? I may have shared before, but in high school, I went through a difficult move. We moved from Indianapolis to Ohio, and it was a tough time. And I questioned, God, what are you doing in my life? Through breakup of a relationship, I wondered, God, what are you doing in my life? Are you done with me? Through a career change, I wondered, God, what's going on? What's your plan? What's your purpose for me? But God, in his gentle voice, reminded me, He's not done with me, and he's not done with you either. Today, I want to do two things. I want to walk through the book of Esther with you. Um, I don't know if you guys use your pew Bibles ever. The church I'm at, we don't. Usually, they're a little dusty, but I'd encourage you to take it out and turn to the book of Esther. I'm going to skim through it real quickly, all 10 chapters. Um, Page 488, I believe, is where it starts. If you've got a device and you want to pull it up, I'm going to be going through the NIV but I want to talk through the story of Esther, and then I want to glean some lessons that we might take away. Esther is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible because it makes a great story. It really ought to be read in one setting and read as a story because it is a story. It's filled with all kinds of drama and excitement, as we saw Miss Tracy share in the children's moment. All kinds of plots and subplots happening. And most exciting of all is this story is true. And like the rest of scripture, Esther is a living, has a living word for us today. The story of Esther resolves, revolves around four central characters. I like the, the kind of cartoon pictures we had on the screen a few minutes ago. We have King Xerxes, we have Mordecai, we have Esther, and we have the villain Haman. Well, King Xerxes was also known as Ahasuerus, if you read a different translation. He ruled the Persian Empire from 486 to 465 BC. You may remember from the story of Daniel, um, where Daniel and his three friends, you know, in the fiery furnace and all that piece, you remember they were also captives in Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar, in that case, gave them new names. Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar, Hananiah was given the name Shadrach, Mishael was given the name Meshach, and Azariah was given the name Abednego. Well, in the same way in our story, we have some of the characters with multiple names. Mordecai is sometimes identified with Marduka, a real historic character who was a Persian court official in the reign of Darius and Xerxes. Marduka, you may recognize, is a a variation of the Babylonian name for the god Marduk. So Mordecai is given the name of this um, Babylonian Persian god. And Esther is derived from the Persian name Stara, Estara, you hear it in there. And her name comes from the Babylonian deity Ishtar. If you think about it, Ishtar, Esther, not that far different. But we're told in the story, her Jewish name is Hadassah. I'm going to call her Esther today. Let's take a look briefly at the text of the book of Esther. The first two chapters talk all about Xerxes' greatness. Xerxes is holding one of his famous drinking parties, which history tells us all about. 
when his wife, the Queen Vashti, is ignored and com- ignores his command to come to the party. Well, Xerxes becomes furious, issues a decree saying she can't ever come before him again. So immediately a search is sent out for a new queen. Before we meet Esther, we're told about a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai had a cousin, Hadassah, Esther, who he raised because she had no father or mother. In other words, she's an orphan. Well, the girls in the kingdom were brought to the king's palace one by one and presented to the king. Esther became a favorite of the court official who was in charge of the harem. He gave her special treatment and special food. And over time, we're told, Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. Likewise, the king took note and made her the queen. Well, about that time, Mordecai happens to be at the right place at the right time to learn about a plot to assassinate the king. Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king, who investigates, finds out the account is true, and puts the conspirators to death. All that in just the first two chapters. Well, in chapter three, we finally meet Haman, the villain. The book tells us he's a high court official who's elevated to a position above all the other nobles, even Mordecai. All the nobles kneel when Haman comes by, except for, guess who? Mordecai. Well, Haman thinks he's big stuff, so he plots revenge against Mordecai. He could not not only have Mordecai executed, but he wants his entire race exterminated, as we saw in Miss Tracy's video. When Haman asks Xerxes for permission, Xerxes says, go ahead and do it. So Haman rolls the dice, called Purim, picks a date, And for the first time in recorded history, there's a decree to systematically kill all the Jews. Well, the second part of chapter 3, we get to Haman's decree to kill the Jews. And chapter 4, Mordecai and Esther plot to overthrow this decree or reverse the decree. When Mordecai hears about it, he's overcome with grief. Esther finds out about the decree, but she can't do anything because she can't go into the king's presence without being invited. Mordecai warns her, just because you're the queen, you're not safe. And we get to probably the most famous verse in all of Esther. Chapter 4, verse 14, Mordecai tells her, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. I wonder what place God has placed you. Are you there for such a time as this? Has God placed a call on your life? Let's see why Esther was placed where she was. Well, in chapter five, we have a story of Esther's first banquet. So here's the plan Mordecai and Esther come come up with. Esther will throw a banquet for the queens, king so that he will invite her in. And the plan works perfectly. He's so pleased with the banquet and with her dancing that he promises to do whatever she asks. So she says, how about I give you another banquet tomorrow? And this time, let's invite your friend Haman. So in the meantime, Haman's out going about his business. He passes by Mordecai again, who again doesn't bow. 
Well, Haman somehow manages to restrain himself and brags to his friends that he's the only one invited to the king's dinner tomorrow. His friends tell him to have a gallows built and take care of this Mordecai guy once and for all and to go to the banquet and enjoy himself. And then in chapter 6, we have the pivot of the story. One night, on the night before the banquet, the king can't sleep, so he has the royal records slept royal records read, which I would think would put just about anybody to sleep. Pull out the minutes of your last meeting and read them some night. But it just so happens that the part of the royal records are read. It's the story of Mordecai telling him about the plot and saves his life. And he asks his officials in the morning, what was done for Mordecai? And they say, well, nothing was done. So just then, Haman walks in, ready to tell the king about his gallows he's built. But before he can say anything, the king asks him, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Well, Haman's his right-hand man. He's above all the others. So what's Haman think he's talking? Who's Haman think he's talking about? Himself. So he says, well, give him a robe, give him a crown, put him on a horse, lead him through the city, proclaiming this is what the king does for his favorite man. Well, Xerxes says, great idea. Go do it. For who? For Mordecai. Well, you can imagine Haman's reaction. He's shocked, but he he goes and tells his wife and he tells his friends what happened. They don't have much reassurance for him, but just then the king's assistants arrive and take him to the second banquet. So in chapter seven has the story of Esther's banquet. At the banquet, Esther now accuses Haman of plotting against her race. She reveals that she's a Jew. When one of the king's servants volunteers, well, Haman actually had this gallows built to kill Mordecai. Well, the king just ordered him to be honored. Xerxes immediately has Haman and his sons hanged on the gallows instead. Chapter 8, then, we see Mordecai and Esther plan to reverse this decree to kill the Jews. We see Mordecai's decree to save the Jews, and we see Mordecai now elevated to a high position. According to custom, once a royal decree had been published, it couldn't be revoked, so Xerxes gave Mordecai a seal, told him to write any decree in Xerxes' name that would correct the situation. Well, the new decree simply gave the Jews the right to organize and to protect themselves by killing those who had planned to kill them. No victims could be plundered, so the motives of the defenders could not be greed. And then finally, the last two chapters of the book of Esther, chapters 9 and 10, we see Mordecai's greatness. When the appointed day for the Jews to defend themselves and make the, as many of the, excuse me, when the appointed day came, the Jews did defend themselves and many of their enemies were killed. As we saw in the text that was read, it was complete victory, utter destruction. And Mordecai now becomes the most powerful figure in the empire and uses his position to promote the welfare of the Jewish people. The great deliverance reported in Esther is still celebrated today by the Jewish people on March 13th and 14th and is known as the Feast of Purim, the dice Haman used to choose the date that the Jews should be killed. Well, notice on the slide on the screen the symmetrical pattern to the story. 
It's one of the reasons it makes it a great read. It's great drama. So many of our modern literature, even our TV shows, follow this pattern where things are set up one way, suddenly there's a reversal, and then finally there's a complete um, uh, victory for the one that looks like they were going to be destroyed. There are several things to encourage us in this story. For one, even a person not noted for courage, like Esther, can rise to the occasion when necessary. She's able to act against her normal character. And we have that same possibility to live beyond ourselves and our potential when we know God is with us. Second, when a person faces his or her fear, that fear can be dealt with. The text suggests that Esther was still understandably afraid. Yet she faced her fears and determined to act anyway. Esther would do what she had to do, realizing that she couldn't control the outcome. Third, Esther determined to act in faith. Well, prayer is not mentioned in the text. Fasting was associated with Israel and with appeals to God for deliverance from danger and other religious observances. And finally, I mentioned there were four characters in the story, but there's a fifth who's never named, who's never mentioned, and who never speaks. Anyone want to guess who? God. God. The circumstances, the Jews, the circumstances in particular Mordecai and Esther faced seemed hopeless and impossible. The Jews were in exile. They'd almost been forgotten. They'd almost forgotten their Jewishness. Esther was a girl with low place in society. She was an orphan. There were unalterable royal edicts made, a death sentence made, and yet, even in God's silence, even in his seeming absence, God was not done with Esther. God was not done with Mordecai or with his people. Bible miracles demonstrate God's ability to intervene directly in space and time. God's not limited in his power, but is fully capable of controlling what happens in our real world. The wonders of Exodus and its miraculous plagues to escape Egypt, the passage through the Red Sea, the daily manna provided by God were obvious interventions by God on behalf of his people. But the obvious miracle is not the norm in Scripture. Instead, in history, like our own daily life, things tend to flow the natural way. There's a process, a sequence of events in which causes lead to effects, and both causes and effects can be traced and understood. To some people, the flow is simply chance. You happen to meet the right person waiting in line, and that happens to lead you to a job where you happen to meet a person who becomes your spouse. How lucky, some people say. The ancient Greeks, the flow of cause and effect seemed more grim. The Greeks tended to fix, it on, fix on tragedy and so believed that mindless faith ruined the hopes of people no matter what they did. It was still all chance, no good luck, all bad luck. There was nothing a person could do to affect those things that shaped and influenced his or her life. And then in Esther, we see another view. The God of miracles 
who at times intervenes in obvious supernatural acts to benefit his people, is also at work in the flow of the natural events of life. God directs those chance experiences that prove to be the turning point in lives of individuals and the history of nations. Silently, God's faithfulness is working throughout Esther's story. We see it in Mordecai, a minor court official who's adopted his beautiful niece when her parents died. He was in a position to have her presented as candidate for king, for queen. Vashti, the queen, magically uh, refuses to appear before the king, causing her to be deposed, moved out of the way. Haggai the eunuch takes favor with Esther and gives her special treatment. Mordecai happens to uncover this plot against Xerxes and through Esther saves the king's life and the king somehow forgets to reward him. Haman consulted the diviners to pick the ideal time to plot and destroy. Well, that time provided just enough delay for the two banquets to happen. Mordecai urged Esther to act, calling on her to realize that she might have come to a royal position for such a time as this. The night before, the king can't sleep. He orders the chronicles read, discovers he hasn't rewarded Mordecai, and then decides to honor him. Esther accuses Haman at the banquet. One of the king's attendants tells him about the gallows before he has a chance to, and the king orders Haman to be killed. That all coincidence? That all an accident? Or is God, the fifth character in the story, moving the pieces for his purpose and for his glory? In all these things, and especially the timing of the events so that the circumstance led naturally to another, each of these turning points channeled history to God's ordained end, and the Jewish people were preserved. It may not seem like it right now, but God is not done with you. The prophet Jeremiah put it this way, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. The Apostle Paul put it this way, we we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. One of my favorite contemporary pastors, John Ortberg, um, recently put this out on a, a tweet. He said, there will come a moment when the life you had hoped for will disappear, then another and deeper life can begin. I want to pause and ask you, have you ever been in a place where you wondered if God was done with you? I think the Jews felt that way. I think Mordecai felt that way. I think Esther felt that way. I know I've felt that way. And perhaps some of you have too. I want to have the story of Esther today be a reminder to you of God's faithfulness. That God is not done for you. Done with you. He's got more for you to do. He's still working in your life for his will and his purpose and his pleasure. And if you're in the middle of that place right now, I want to pray for you. Maybe it seems like God is silent. Maybe it seems like God is far away. But I want the story of Esther to be a reminder, God is not done with you. 
He has great plans for you. He has great purpose. He's even now arranging the pieces to bring you through it and to bring him glory. Listen to some of the words in the song Laura sang. Standing in the ruins, it feels a lot like the end. So used to losing, you're afraid to try again. God's not done with you, even with your broken heart and your wounds and your scars. Even when you're lost and it's hard and you're falling apart, it's not over. It's only begun. Don't hide. Don't run. God's not done with you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your living word. We thank you for the example of Esther. The way you could use a, a Jewish orphan girl far away in exile to preserve your people. We thank you that we can see your hand in her life even, even though you're not spoken, even though your name's not mentioned, we can see you arranging the pieces. Lord, help us to see you arranging the pieces of our lives today. Thank you for those of us that have been in that place that Esther can be a reminder of your goodness and your faithfulness to us. And I wanna pray for my friends that are here in this room or watching on, on, online that feel like maybe you're far away. Help them to know you are not done with them. Speak to them, encourage them, reveal yourself to them. It's in Jesus' name we pray.